Good morning, church. I'm excited to be here with you today because I have the privilege to teach uh, what is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. Uh, and I'm also really excited to be here because the past month has been a uh, thrilling time in the Maurice household. In January, my wife, Kate, gave birth to our second daughter. And so we've been navigating life with a newborn. And I am finally understanding why so many of you drive minivans around here. I used to be so judgmental and like, oh, never. But a door that slides open sounds incredible. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, we're doing great. And uh, yeah, for the past month, Pastor Matt has been teaching through the book of Genesis. And recently, we've been studying the patriarchs. Uh, we've seen the faith of Abraham, a man who chooses to trust and, and to follow God and the unbreakable the covenant vow that God makes with Abraham, promising him land, a family that's going to become a nation uh, through a son, and then ultimately that the entire world is going to be blessed through this lineage. Abraham's son, the child of promise, was named Isaac, and Abraham again demonstrates his faith and his willingness to trust God even when asked to give up to sacrifice his only son. God stops Abraham he doesn't allow Abraham to give up Isaac. And, and what we're seeing throughout the pages of Genesis and in the lives of these patriarchs, it's the blueprint that God is, is building toward. It's the script of God's divine story, and it's rife with this foreshadowing. Because God does bless the entire world through the lineage of Abraham. And, and God does that by not withholding his son, but by giving Jesus for us. And so Abraham and then Isaac, today we're going to talk about a guy named Jacob, Isaac's son, Abraham's grandson, and today we're going to focus on one episode of Jacob's life. It's Genesis chapter 28. It's another piece, it's another part of the design for the plan of what God is going to do from Genesis to the gospel, and it reveals God's sovereignty in how he is ultimately going to rescue and redeem mankind. And in order to drop into the scene to see what God is doing, first we need a little bit of backstory. Jacob is one of two sons. And while he and his brother were still in the womb, God gives their mother, Rebekah, this prophecy that the older son is going to serve the younger. God promises that it's the younger son that he's choosing to bless and, and to fulfill this promise through. The two boys are born, and the older son is named Esau, and he's exactly what his earthly father wanted. And so Isaac loves Esau, the older son, more. But mom loves the younger boy, Jacob, more. And already you can see this sibling rivalry that's, that's going to take place. Because Jacob grows up coveting his father's love, just longing for dad's attention, desiring his father's blessing. And so one day, Jacob trades a bowl of soup to Esau for this firstborn birthright. Esau just gives it away like it's nothing. Jacob takes it because he wants it. He's wanting this validation, this, this familial status that the older brother had. And then later, dad is on his deathbed. He's, he's mostly blind. It's time for Isaac to give the paternal blessing. And this is what Jacob has always wanted and so he dresses up as Esau. He pretends to be somebody else to step into the relational status with their father. 
to trick dad into giving him the blessing. But this whole plan, this whole deceiving and and taking for himself, it, it backfires because Esau finds out about it. He wants to kill him. And Jacob has to run for his life. His father sends him away to avoid the wrath of his brother. And so Jacob leaves home and family and everything he's ever had and ever known. Jacob is a great patriarch to study because he's so easy to relate to because he's got so many problems. He has doubts and and failures and struggles. The guy is a Freudian masterpiece. He's got mommy issues and daddy issues. He's got birth order stuff and, and sibling jealousy, and he's so impeccably human in his imperfection. He's a thief and a schemer and a manipulator and a liar, and that gets us to Genesis 28. And when we find Jacob, he's in the middle of nowhere, and he's all alone. And that's where we'll pick up our story. So please go ahead, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28. We'll start in verse 10. And I love this passage because the author is telling a great story. It's a fairly straightforward text, but it's profound in what it teaches us about the nature of God. And so as we study together this morning, ask yourself, what does the scripture say about who God is, and what does that say about who I am in turn? What do we learn about God, and what does that say about us? Genesis 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba, his home, and he went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place, a nowhere place, and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. Jacob is isolated. He's alone. There's no family, no future. He's this hopeless wanderer in this unnamed place, and now it's dark. Two really great details in these initial verses. First, the author tells us that the sun had set. And this is beautiful scene staging because we have this external, physical, natural darkness that's emblematic of Jacob's inner darkness. Secondly, in this nowhere place, Jacob uses a stone for a pillow. Now, why use a stone and then why tell us about it? Because Jacob has nothing else. Why else would you sleep on a rock? Nobody goes camping and says, hey, let's find the rockiest place to set up a tent. Nobody does that. Jacob doesn't have a pillow or he would have used it. He doesn't have an extra set of clothes or he'd bundle them up and and sleep on that instead. Jacob has nothing, so he sleeps on a rock. The author is showing us how completely Jacob's life has fallen apart. And it's not just outer circumstances. This is the condition of his heart and his soul. Because even in this desperate position, we don't find Jacob praying. He's not asking God for help. He's not talking to God. And this is such a departure from our other patriarchs. Grandpa Abraham, he believed and met with and spoke to God. Even even Isaac met with God, but Jacob to this point in his life had never met the God of his forefathers. Jacob has never had an encounter with God. And so, as his mind drifts off to sleep, he's got to be thinking, I've got nothing. 
I, I am nothing. I'm all alone. Surely God is far away from me because I am far away from him. But then Jacob has a dream and everything changes. Picking up in verse 12, Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a stairway set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above him. Middle of nowhere, darkest night of Jacob's life, God pursues Jacob. And it's God who begins the process of changing Jacob forever. And on this night, Jacob sees three things and he hears from God. And, and it's this encounter with God in, on this night in this dream, this vision, where God displays his design for rescuing and redeeming a broken person. And God is showing us how he rescues and redeems a broken world. The first thing that Jacob sees in this dream is a stairway. Now, some Bible translations and a great song says that it's a ladder. Uh, or no, it is a stairway, isn't it? Uh, which is fine. Ladder is an okay translation. But the, the song is actually right because the biblical, the Hebrew word being used here, it signifies something more like a large ramp or a great staircase. This, this isn't a narrow, skinny ladder that you use to put up Christmas lights. What Jacob sees is enormous. It touches the earth and it reaches to heaven. And the only other time in the book of Genesis that a building of this size is mentioned is in chapter 11, a tower that mankind was building at a place called Babel. Now, whereas that's a building of human effort and ingenuity and, and engineering that ultimately fails to reach heaven, what Jacob sees is a structure of divine power that succeeds in, in reaching, in bridging heaven and earth. The second thing that Jacob sees in this vision is angels. Angels ascending and descending. And hold on to that phrase because we're going to come back to it later. Ascending and descending this grand stairway. Brief note on angels. Anytime you see an angel in Scripture, don't think Hallmark card or, or, or children's Bible. Because anytime an angel shows up in the Bible, the first thing they have to say to a human being is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because the very sight of an angel is, is so overwhelming to, to human beings that they, you fall down, you hide your eyes, it, it's, it's too much. Angels are, are messengers. They're servants of the king of all creation. They're sent to carry out his mission and, and plan and proclamations. And Jacob doesn't just see one he sees multiple angels traversing these steps, traveling up and down from heaven to earth. It's this overwhelming, astonishing sight. A stairway, angels at work, that's all incredible. But it's the third thing that Jacob sees that is absolutely astounding because standing over Jacob is God, God himself. Verse 13 says, Behold, Yahweh, the Lord, God stood above him. In the middle of the wilderness, as Jacob is experiencing this dark night of his soul, 
God himself stoops down to stand over him in a posture of nearness and, and intimacy. It's, it's this parental pose that demonstrates God's love for Jacob. My wife and I, we adopted our first daughter, and when we first brought Mary home, she was almost two years old, and I remember as a new parent, we would do this thing, we'd, we'd put her down for bed, and, and then we'd go to the living room and, and read or, or watch TV, and, and almost every night we would turn to each other and say, hey, do you want to go look at her? And so we would tiptoe quietly, very quietly into her room. We found out it's like a ticking time bomb. You don't want to wake up a toddler. We'd tiptoe in there, and, and we would lean over the railing of her crib, and we would just look down at her. And in those quiet moments, sometimes we would pray for her, and, and sometimes we would just be there watching over our child. And with our newborn, she's asleep, she's helpless, and, and we do the same thing because they're our children, and we love them. We stoop down to watch over them because they're ours. And in Jacob's dream, he's asleep, he's alone, he's vulnerable. And before he hears from God, Jacob looks up and he sees God. And for someone who must have always longed for dad's attention, for someone who must have grown up just thinking, I wish dad would, would just look my way once in a while. Jacob looks up and he sees his heavenly father bending down, watching him as he sleeps. Isn't that incredible? Having made a mess of his life on what is easily the worst night of his life, in a place where he's alone and, and sinful and, and helpless, God appears in such a way to Jacob to show that he's with him and that he loves him. And, and Jacob sees that, and then he hears this. God speaks to Jacob, and he says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all of the families on earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I promised to you. God tells Jacob who he is, and then God renews his covenant promise. This is the covenant that was given to Abraham and to Isaac, land and offspring and a, a nation that would be a blessing to the entire world through their lineage. And God makes Jacob a promise. I'm with you, I will be with you, and I will not leave you. Jacob was not pursuing God, but God has chased Jacob down. And, and he wakes up from this vision and he says to himself, surely the Lord was in this place and I, I did not know it. And, and he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. How awesome or, or how dreadful is this place? This encounter, it's chilled his blood. The hairs on the back of his neck are, are standing up because Jacob is understanding maybe for the first time in his life that God is not far away 
God is not distant or unloving. God is here. He said, God was in this place, and I did not know it. God was here, and I didn't realize it. God was near to me. I just didn't get it. And what we see in Genesis 28 on this night in Jacob's life, it's another example. It's another piece of the gospel being set into place because we're seeing who God is and how God works. Because Jacob is in the worst state of his life. He has made no move toward God, but God makes him an unconditional promise of love. I mean, that's pretty weird, isn't it? It seems strange. Jacob isn't seeking God. He's, he's running from God. He's running from everything in his life. And yet, God comes to Jacob. God is revealing how he will restore the relationship between himself and all of broken and fallen humanity. God is showing how he is going to bridge this expanse between a holy God in heaven and sinful man on earth. Now, how can that be? And the answer is going to come centuries later in a passage in the New Testament that doesn't quite make sense until you see the connection back to Genesis 28. Because Jesus says something in the book of John, and when you read it in context with the rest of the story that God's been telling, it unfolds the power of God and, and the magnitude of grace and the plan of salvation. And so you can turn there and join me if you'd like. It's John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. Jesus has, has begun his ministry, and he finds a young man named Philip. And he chooses Philip to be a disciple. And he says, follow me. And Philip runs to his friend, a, a guy named Nathaniel, and he says, we found him. This is the guy that Moses and the law and the prophets spoke of. This is the guy that the Bible has been telling us about. His name's Jesus, and, and he's from Nazareth. And, and Nathaniel, he, he brushes this off, and he says, Nazareth? That nowhere place? Can anything good come from there? It's almost as bad as Oklahoma. It's, yikes. Could God come from a place like that? And Philip just says, hey, come and see. And so they go to meet Jesus, and as they're approaching, Jesus sees Nathanael, and he says, here, here is a true Israelite. And Nathanael's he's kind of taken aback. He says, how do you know me? How do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip even came to get you, when you were under the fig tree, Nathanael, I saw you. I saw you. And this unravels Nathanael. He goes from a doubter to a true believer in two seconds. He calls Jesus Rabbi, Son of God, King of Israel. All because of what Jesus said. Now, we have no idea what Nathanael was doing under that fig tree. It's this private moment. Maybe it was his dark night in the middle of nowhere. But what's clear is that to Nathanael, it was absolutely significant because no one else could have known or should have known what he was doing under that tree. And the mere mention of it, and Nathanael is all in. He says, yes, this guy is the son of God. And Jesus' response is this, and here it is. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, 
you believe, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Do you see what God was doing in Genesis and now here? Jesus is saying, I am the stairway. I am the way between heaven and earth. I am how a holy, sovereign, just God will reestablish a relationship with sinful mankind. Jesus is the ladder. He's the stairway connecting a perfect God with imperfect man. And this is completely antithetical to every world religion or system of moralistic belief. Because every sort of religion says that I, me, I need to do things right and follow these certain steps in such a way that I can ascend to God or to heaven or enlightenment or or whatever it may be. Every religious system says, here are the steps, now start climbing. But what God shows Jacob and what Jesus tells us is that those steps serve a different purpose. Jesus doesn't say, here are the steps, start ascending. Jesus says, I am the steps, and I have descended. I'm the one who lays down my perfect life to come to you, to bring salvation to you. And so the the stairway, the steps, they're not a what. They're a who. And, And they're not the way that a person gets to God They are God with us. And that is why God pursues Jacob in the wilderness, and it's why Jesus calls Nathanael. Because the truth of salvation, the story of the Bible from Genesis to the Gospels is God saying, I have come to you. I am connected to you. I love you. I am with you. Not because of you, but because of my grace toward you. And that's the gospel. And so how, how do we live with the truth of the gospel in our, in our souls? How do we live in, in light of God's plan for redemption and, and salvation? Where can we apply this truth in our lives? And, and how do we respond to a father who has bent low to earth to bring us to him? I want to encourage uh, two, two different things, two different ways that we live in response to this truth. Learning from Genesis 28, the first thing that we can take away from Jacob's encounter with God is to ask ourselves, have you encountered God? Have you encountered God? Maybe you haven't. Or maybe it's been a long time since you actually spent time with God. And, and, and like Jacob, you're running. You're running from something, from, from brokenness, from failure, from, from a past. And you've hit this place, and it feels like you've got nothing else. And, and you feel all alone. Or, or maybe you know and, and you believe all about God. But it's, it's all this knowledge, and it's just 
answers and, and facts, but it's not a relationship, and, and you've never encountered his overwhelming grace. Or, or you're living with this mindset that, yeah, here are the steps, and I just have to keep climbing, and eventually I'll get there. Listen, Jacob probably heard and knew every story about God from Isaac and Abraham, and he probably believed them, but he hadn't encountered God yet. And so if you're running or, or here climbing today, w- would you stop? Because God, he's in this place, he's in this moment, he's wanting to be a part of your life even when you did not know it. And so if you've never trusted in Christ to rescue and, and redeem and restore your relationship with God, you can do that even today. And if you don't know how to do that, you can pray with me afterwards or or come talk to me at the end or ask that friend who invited you today or, or ask somebody that you know who follows Jesus. Ask them, how do I have an encounter with this God of grace? Or if faith has become just this religious thing that you do, and there's, there's no thought of grace anywhere. You can quit running. You can quit climbing. Because God is here. That's the gospel. God is here, especially when we're alone and weak and broken. 2 Corinthians 12.9 tells us that weak and broken is actually the state of our souls, that God does the best work. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. God works in our souls when we're weak and broken. In fact, that's the only way that we can come to Christ. You you cannot show up to Jesus with with your chest out and your chin held high and your hair combed and say, here I am. Where are the steps? I'm going to start climbing. Because that's not what they're for. Because to think that we can get to God displays an utter lack of understanding of the truth of who God is and where he is and what he has done to be with us. And so ask yourself, have you had an encounter with God? That's first. The second way to live into this salvation, into the gospel, is to practice God's presence. Practice God's presence because it's so easy to do the opposite. To believe the lie that God is remote, that God is, is out there, and, and we come to and, and we interact with him occasionally. Uh, on Sunday mornings at church or in these monumental events in life or, or in crisis moments when we really need him, that's when we go to him. But otherwise, he's, he's mostly uncaring, he's somewhat unfeeling, and just unaware of, of my little life. Because over here, my day-to-day work or the home stuff, or that's, that's real life. And it, we can fall into this trap where we dichotomize our existence into these times and these areas and these places that are sacred and then times that are just normal. But the truth of Scripture is that God is here. God is working anywhere, everywhere, and he is in this place even if I, I did not know it. I love, I love that Jacob uses that phrase because the beginning of encountering God is simply paying attention. 
being present where you are, waking up to the reality of what we are a part of. Because too often we are oblivious to the miraculous, the, the significance that God's presence is with us through Christ. It's incredible. There's a book called The Practice of the Presence of God written in the 17th century by a French monk named Brother Lawrence. And it details this monk's desire, his, his quest to be in God's presence continually, which he found pretty difficult to do, even in a monastery in the French countryside in the 17th century. So how do we have any hope? But living in a monastery, he found himself going back and forth between the things that he thought were religious, the prayer times in the chapel, the meditation in the garden, reflecting on the scriptures and on his soul. Yeah, that's the religious stuff. And, and then the times that were, in his early opinion, irreligious, cleaning the monastery bathrooms, cooking dinner, making his bed. But as he grew and as he matured in his faith, he began to realize that each moment of every single day presented him with the opportunity to practice the presence of God, to, to pray in times when he would not otherwise be praying, to reflect on God and, and his relationship with him outside of those expected times to remember and, and to think on God's grace, even when he was peeling potatoes or, or scrubbing a latrine. Lawrence writes in a letter to a friend how he's encouraging his friend to practice God's presence. And he says, lift up your heart to God. Lift up your heart to him during your meals or in, in company with others. Even the least little remembrance will always be the most pleasing to our heavenly father. And one need not cry out very loudly because he is nearer to us than we think. He is nearer to us than we think. God is in this place even when I, I did not know it. So this week, I want to encourage us to practice God's presence. And a profound and, and really simple way to do that is to pray. Pray, communicate with the creator of the universe. Reflect on God's great love for you and his grace towards you and the relationship that he desires with you. And so pray. Practice prayer this week alone or with a friend, with your spouse, with your kids, in the car, in the office, in, in the gym, on your walk to the mailbox. Pray. Times when you're used to praying too, but also when you're not accustomed to it. If you or your family routinely prays before a meal, then perhaps alter the routine in a way to broaden your perception of God's presence. You could open your Bible to a psalm and pray the psalm before eating. You could think of one person that you could pray for, that they might encounter God's presence and God's grace. You could thank God, not just for food on a plate, but for his overwhelming love toward us. If you don't typically pray before a meal, try it this week. This week, say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to commit, I'm going to practice this, and just pray. And I know, a new practice, new habit can feel difficult. Maybe it's a little awkward. But hey, that's great, because as we already discussed, awkwardness, weakness, the, ah, I don't know how to do this, that's the kind of place that God likes to work. So give it a try. 
Set an alarm on your phone. I, I did that this morning. I picked a time, 12.22 every day. I'm going to have an alarm. I'm going to take that moment out of my day when I hear that tone to just pray and to remind myself, yeah, God is here too. And he's always been here. Find a time to pray. Pray unexpectedly. Sanctify those little moments of your day by reminding yourself that God is there too. I have had the opportunity to practice God's presence this week in moments where it feels pretty far from God in uh, changing diapers. Because if there is a time in my day that feels like there is nothing spiritual, in fact, it's pretty sinful, it's changing a newborn's diaper. And there's a lot of it to change. But, but I tell you, in, in those moments that could just be throwaway moments, literally, just praying over my daughter, knowing that our Heavenly Father is there too, just practicing God's presence in my life, in that moment, it becomes significant. And, and it's changing it. It's, it's not just a throwaway moment. It's a time with our Father. And so what can that moment be for you? The part of your day where it feels like God has no part of. Is it your commute? The Monday morning meeting? Running from errand to errand, the school drop-off line or the pickup line, whatever it is for you, maybe it's that part of your day that you're saying, nope, this is just for me. Let me tell you, it, it's not. It's not. God is waiting for you to, to look up and, and realize that he is there too. So let's practice God's presence this week and, and pray. Jacob was far from God, but God was never far from him. And we were far from God, but God drew near to us through Christ. And that is the story of the Bible. That is God's story of redemption. And I pray that it becomes your story as well. Would you please pray with me? Father, we, we come before you and we are, are humbled. Um, because of who you are. God, we come before you and, and we know that there is nothing within us that we can, can offer, that we can give. Uh, God, that would be accepted as holy, but God, you have come to us. God, you sent your son for us to live the life that we couldn't live and, and to die a death for us and to come back, to rise again God, to bridge this relationship between heaven and earth. God, we thank you for your son, and we pray and we trust in his love and in his life and his sacrifice for us, that we would be made whole, that we'd be restored to you. God, we pray that and we believe that today, and we pray that this week we would practice your presence in our lives, that we would know that you're there even when we don't feel it or even when we don't think it, God, help us to believe and know that truth, that you are there, that you're with us, you'll never leave us. God, because you love us. Father, we love you and we praise you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.